Glad you're here tonight. I'm excited about um, still going through this uh, study on overcoming through the book of Revelation. That is the theme. I mean, although you could get a lot of themes from this book, it's what we've chosen to focus on. And um, through these first three chapters, as Jesus talks to the churches, we've gone through, you know, every bit of it. And we've taken our time. When we get through those letters to the churches, we, we're not gonna um, we're not gonna still just read every single verse. There's gonna be some themes that we focus on, and we're gonna I'm, I'm gonna do our, we're do our best not to cut and paste. Um, so we're not skipping over anything because it's uncomfortable. It's just we uh, we we want to really put a focus on um, the overcoming of Jesus, how he has overcome, how he is overcoming, how he will yet overcome. And how through him the believer overcomes. I mean, if you're, I think anything that Jesus bothers to say more than once, we need to pay attention to it. We actually, anything Jesus says we should pay attention to. Um, we maybe should pay extra special attention when he repeats himself. Anything Jesus, I mean, you, you know what I mean. Come on, guys. You get it, right? Don't go home and be like, you know, Pastor Jonathan, I, I think he throws out some of the things that Jesus says. No, you know. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God is our bread, is our life. Um, but there is, there's something to be said if Jesus feels it's necessary to repeat himself over and over again. And, and what are the themes that come out in these seven letters? The, the, the number one thing that you see over and over again, first of all, is that Jesus knows. He knows what they're going through. He knows where they live. He knows what they're experiencing. He doesn't know it because he's been told about it. He knows it because he's been with them. In fact, at the beginning, he said, I've walked among you. I walk amongst the seven lampstands. I've been walking among the churches. And we all know that Jesus is present all the time with us, right? We know that where two or three are gathered, he's in our midst. And yet, he's also with you when you're alone with God. But there's an idea of Jesus walking among the churches that's not just talking about them experiencing his presence. It, it almost is like, um, like a, a loving overseer coming and saying, and, and observing and saying, here are the areas where there's weakness that I want to make strong, and here's the areas where you think you're strong that you really need to, you need to look at again, and here, here's what I want to build in you, and here's what I want to take out of you. Because Jesus is loving. But a loving Father, a loving God, is, is, is at times going to be um, a builder, and at times he's going to be a surgeon that needs to remove something that's killing you right? We, we've talked about this before, but I, I love what God says to Jeremiah in the first chapter. He says, I put my words in your mouth to tear down, to pluck up, to, to destroy, to overthrow, and then to build and to plant. So he, he tells them, he says, you're a prophet, Jeremiah, and, and by the words that I've put in your mouth, so the word of God, it's going to do six things. And four out of six of those things are actually tearing things up and destroying things, which, which we might say, well, God would never destroy anything. Well, he certainly will if he's destroying something that's destructive, right? Is that, that, that's a hard thing? This should be a good thing, right? If, he, if, if there's something that is keeping God from building something in your life, if there's something that's taking up room where he can't plant something in your own heart, you want him to remove that. In Loon Lake, uh, some of you helped us out with this. Uh, you joined with the believers in Loon Lake. We, we had some land that we were, we were given, and it was near the church. And unfortunately, that land had been used greatly for bad things. 
Um, and so there was, there was various little buildings on the land that, that were quite full of uh, drug paraphernalia, broken bottles, stuff like that. In fact, the RCMP had contacted us and said, can you do something about these things? Because they're, they're sheltering people that are, that are um, doing some things they shouldn't be doing, and it's dangerous, right? So there's fire hazards. There's, you know, there's guys that are passing out in the middle of winter. Nobody knows they're passed out. They could die. You know, these things were taking place on our property, which is not a good thing, right? We, we want that property. In fact, we believe that that property is going to play a part in being a source of healing for people who are dealing with that stuff, right? Like that's where we're going to help the addicts and we're going to help. And so instead, we'd become like a shelter for people who were not getting help. They're getting worse. And so we took a team and, and what do we have to do? We cleaned up, but we tore stuff down. We tore old buildings down, and let me tell you, it, wouldn't take, it did not take much for a lot of these buildings to come down. They, that was the problem. People were in there, and, and at any moment, that building could have come down on them. So we're destroying things so that something could be built. We're uprooting things so something could be planted. If you planted a garden, you know, first you got to go in there and put, tear some things out, Right? If a farmer can't just go and say, here's a good plot of land and throw a seed on it. He's got he's to dig things up. He's got to root it up. And then he's got room to plant something. So Jesus is good enough that he's going to build things in you. He's going to plant things in you. He's going to say, here's what you need and I'm the one who can give it to you. But he's also going to say, look, you got a tumor. It's going to kill you if you don't let me remove it. So let me remove it. He's good enough that he's going to come to his church and say, this is causing you a problem. Let me fix it. And sometimes we're not comfortable with that because we all picture if we got a letter from Jesus. Remember, the book of Revelation is deep New Testament, right? You guys are real quiet tonight. This does not bode well for what I'm about to talk about. <laughs> right? I mean, so the book of Revelation, you can't say that this is old covenant stuff. Which is as New Testament as it gets. It's at the end of the New Testament. It, it, it's, it's as far from the Old Testament as you can get as far as a, a distance from page to page. <laughs> Not that you should judge anything by that. Thank God for the Old Testament. But it, you can't say, well, this is, you know, it's, it's since Jesus came, you know, things changed. This is Jesus talking. This is crucified, resurrected, risen, exalted Savior talking to us. And he says, and we all picture if we got a letter from Jesus today, the letter from Jesus would be, I love you, sport. Keep up the good work. You're my pal. You need to just keep going. And, and, and I'm sure there's going to be encouragement in a letter from Jesus. But if Jesus loves me, this I know, then maybe Jesus might bring up something that I'm afraid to confront that's actually destroying me. That's actually keeping me from walking in what he wants me to walk in. And, and as a church, we'd like to believe that we're doing things perfectly, but I'd rather believe that there's a Savior who loves us enough to correct something if it goes wrong. So out of the seven letters he writes, six, maybe five, if you could make the argument that Philadelphia was a pretty good letter, but at least five churches got a got a report of, you guys got something you need to fix. He always encouraged them. He always said, this is what you're doing right. But he also said, these are some things you need to fix. We, we read about Smyrna. Smyrna didn't get a, um, a rebuke from Jesus. But they did get that lovely note from him saying, 
uh, it's tough right now, it's going to get tougher, which is not (laughs) what you want to find in your letter from Jesus either. We're, in the, we're still in the letter to Pergamum, and if you've been with us for the last few weeks, we've given you some historical background to what they're dealing with. Pergamum, a deeply idolatrous city. Um, Pergamum, a, a city where the worship of the emperor was really pushed strong, and if you refused, you were viewed not only as an atheist, but you were viewed as an enemy of the state, because you were a malcontent that was going to cause problems. And on the edge of the empire where Pergamum was, the governors of the proconsuls of that province, which was the proconsul lived in Pergamum, the proconsul, his neck was on the line because he's being watched for how his citizens are lifting up, exalting, and uh, obeying the emperor. And if his citizens aren't in line, his neck's on the line because the emperor is crazy. Any emperor that says, I'm God, you need to worship me, is, is not completely, you know, on the level. This is not a guy that uh, you really want to elect into office. So he wasn't elected. He just got in because he, you know, he had relatives in power, right? He's in the line. So if you're a Christian in Pergamum, there's not only cultural pressure for you to be an idolater and worship the Greek gods, worship the Roman gods, but there is government law that says you've got to worship the emperor as well. Now, here's the thing about Pergamum. Pergamum was a city which was okay with you worshiping a ton of different gods. And can I tell you something? The, the people of Pergamum would not have minded. I, 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 I believe this because you see evidence of it. They would not have minded if you worshiped Jesus plus all their other gods. You know, their problem with Jesus was that Jesus said, I'm the way. I'm the truth, I'm the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. They would have been fine if you added Jesus to the pantheon of gods. The problem is, is that people that follow Jesus turned from idolatry. They turned from their old ways and they turned to Jesus. And so, people had a problem with that. They had a big problem with that. You know, Peter talked about, he said... He said, you know, your old friends are going to come to you and they're going to have a problem with the way you live. He said, when you don't run into the same excesses as them, they will revile you for it. What is an ex- excess? I mean, that, they're living a, a loose lifestyle. They're, they're living a sinful lifestyle, whether it be throwing themselves into abusing a substance or whether it be uh, sexual immorality, or whether, whatever it was, idolatry, whatever it was. Peter said, your old friends are going to be extra mad at you. The people that are going to hate you the most are the people that you used to hang out with. And the reason is, is because now that you've changed, the lights shine on them, and their their lifestyle is now in contrast. You make them uncomfortable because by by your very essence of being light, you're exposing their darkness. And people don't like that. You don't even have to say a word. People will be uncomfortable with that. Maybe you've experienced this, guys. Some of you who came out of the world and you were living a hardcore worldly lifestyle, you came out of it. It's your friends that want to get you back into it the most. Not because, and you might think it's because they miss you and maybe that's part of it, but I think a big part of it is you're making them feel guilty. So Paul said, we are the fragrance of Christ to God. We smell like Jesus. But he says, to those that are perishing, we're the scent of death. That's a terrible statement. That's a hard statement. What do you mean I smell like death? So I smell like Jesus to God, but I smell like death to these people. Why do I smell like death? Because the fragrance of Jesus is is showing them right now that they're dying. 
your light is exposing that darkness. And so they're aware. All of a sudden, they're aware that they're, they're dying. They didn't know they were dying. We didn't know we were dying until somebody told us, you're dying, you need to be saved. And all of a sudden, they're realizing they're dying. And you can respond one of two ways. You can respond like the many did on the day of Pentecost and, and said to Peter, what must we do to be saved? Or you can respond like the religious leaders did to Stephen and get mad and want to kill him. But you're going to have a response. So all of the apostles wrote about this and said, guys, don't be surprised when this happens. But stay true. Stay firm. Hold on to something. We talked about that last week. He said, Jesus said to them, and he said it in a very loving way. He said, I'm proud of you guys. I'm, I'm encouraged by you because you held fast my name. You held fast even in the days of my Antipas, my faithful servant, my witness, or my martyr. Antipas was a leader in the church of Pergamum. He was a, we can assume he was an important person in their congregation who was brutally murdered for his faith, and yet he held tight. He said, you did not deny my name. Not only did Antipas not deny my name, but when your leader, perhaps your pastor, was killed in front of you, you held on. Jesus brought up the Old Testament scripture that said, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And it's exactly what happened when he was arrested. The disciples went every way. The only guy that was at, the only disciple that was at the cross was John. Everybody else had run. Even John ran out of the garden, naked. <laughs> he wasn't naked to start with. They grabbed his robe and he ran out. Strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. So why aren't the sheep scattering now? Well, number one, those pastors are shepherds, but they're shepherds under the chief shepherd. Their chief shepherd has been struck and he's risen. Never lose him, ever. But secondly, they now have something that the disciples didn't have. They have the spirit of Jesus within them. So when their leader is killed, and he says in your midst, so not, not in a remote secret location, but publicly where they all could see it, which was meant as an intimidation tactic. He said, you did not deny my name. You held fast. You held tight to it. I'd say that's a glowing recommendation from the Savior. But as we continue in Revelation 2, and we're going to go back up and, and read something that we talked about before, um, but we just kind of, we talked about it in passing a couple of weeks ago, and we focused on, on the sword of his mouth and how, how sometimes that sword, like a surgeon's scalpel, is meant to cut something away, and how they had to deal with uh, this false teaching that was in the church. They had to deal with something that was tearing them apart from the inside. And now I, I told you back then that we'd go back and talk about Balaam and the Nicolaitans again, because... Um, you guys got to realize that Balaam, or I imagine if you wanted to pronounce it right, it'd be Balaam, but we're going to say Balaam, right? Can we all be, can we just say Balaam so I don't have to take twice as long to preach tonight? We'll just say Balaam. Balaam was like, one, like 1407 BC. Paul wrote to the Corinthians uh, and brought up some idolatry issues in about 57 AD, Peter wrote a little bit later than that, and John wrote even later than that. So it's almost 1,500 years later, and Balaam's name is still getting brought up. Peter, Peter brought it up. Jude brought it up. Jesus brings it up. It's the guy that lived 1,500 years ago. wasn't even 
an Israelite, he keeps getting brought up in the conversation. So if they can bring him up 1,500 years later, maybe it's not just a cultural thing. Maybe this is a human thing. Maybe this is something that's going to crop up for the rest of history. That same error. Maybe it's something we're going to deal with today. Do you think? Or do you just think people in ancient times dealt with things like that? Do you think we might have to deal with some of the sins of Balaam, which was leading people back into immorality and idolatry? Absolutely, we're going to deal with it. Every church has dealt with it since churches began, since Jesus set it up. Here, he says this in Revelation chapter 2. Let's read it. I have a few things against you. Man, Jesus doesn't just say, I, I have something against you. I got a few things against you. I have a list. You have time. Sit down. I got a list. <laughs> like, everybody's like, this is our letter from Jesus. Jesus loves me. Jesus is my teammate. Jesus is my homie. Jesus is my co-pilot. Jesus, Jesus is not supposed to have a list of things he has against me. Jesus doesn't have anything against me because I'm precious, I'm perfect. Well, maybe there's some things he's going to fix, right? Is that a good thing? Are you encouraged by that? It's okay to admit right now, no, but convince me I should be encouraged. That's okay. I'm encouraged that Jesus loves me enough not to um, hide the things that I need to fix. Because those are, those are the things that are killing me right now. And we have this nice little picture that if ever, it, well, it doesn't really matter if it just goes away. It matters. You know, right now, and, and this is, so you guys are probably aware of it, maybe you're not, but there was a, a little meme going around a few months ago, and it was like a funny thing that Tide Pods looked tasty, right? The little Tide Laundry Pods, they look like, you know, so people were making jokes about, you know, eating them, and then people started eating them. And then YouTubers started doing the Tide Pod Challenge and actually eating them. So right now, if you go on like Tide's Twitter page, they're constantly having to say, don't eat these, you idiot, don't eat these, don't eat these. Super Bowl tight end Rob Gronkowski, it should be focusing on winning a Super Bowl, but he's not gonna. Eagles fly, Eagles fly, right? But <laughs> come on, guys, let's, let's stand with our brothers. But Gronk has to stand up and go, he has to stand up and do a commercial for Tide Pods say, guys, don't eat Tide Pods. They're for laundry, they're not for your belly. This is, this is a thing that's happening. And everybody's like, no, nah, it's just a joke. And, and it, you know, the Center for Disease Control, the Center for Poison, they're saying, no, kids are eating these things because they see their, their hero do it on YouTube and they want to do the, the Tide Pod Challenge, which is insane. So what are you going to do if your kid says, looks delicious? You're going to say, well, he's got to find out himself. <laughs> Boy, I can't tell the kid he's wrong. I mean, if that's what his friends on YouTube are doing, precious little man, he's so cute, I can't tell him no. No, you're going to save his life. Put that down. The people that told you to eat it are idiots. Put it down. It's going to kill you. It may look tasty. It's poison. Do you love your kid enough to tell them, don't eat laundry? <laughs> right? Don't eat laundry detergent. I know that sounds really crazy and simple. It's so insane that I, we're talking about a real thing right now. But it's a good thing to be able to say, I'm not going to let you kill yourself. I'm not going to let you poison yourself. And Jesus loves us enough to correct some things that are poisoning us because he loves us. 
So he says, I've got some things against you. And you know, here's the deal. And I, I won't go too far into this, but I really believe that the revelation of a good father changes everything. Because when you know that you are loved by your father, then when he corrects you, it's not rejection. And that's, that's the problem with a lot of people is correction equals rejection to them because they have such a fear of rejection, a fear of you're going to throw me out, you're gonna, you don't love me, that the moment there's correction, they run away. And we do this with God because we, we, we don't understand, or we really haven't grasped that he loves us, he loves us, he loves us. And Hebrews says if you're, an, if you're a legitimate child, if he loves you, he's going to correct you. If he loves you, he's going to discipline you. In fact, the scripture tells us, you know, and, and the psalmist writes that, that, the, the, that the, the child that the father delights in will be disciplined. That he'll, the, the fact that you're being corrected or disciplined is proof that he likes you, proof that he loves you, proof that he has affection for you. Because, let's, listen, if you just let your kid run around and do anything, you don't care if they're playing in the street, you don't care if they're playing with a loaded gun, you don't care if they're eating laundry pods, then you don't love that kid, right? Is that fair? A loving parent wants to save that kid. You realize that they're going to have to find some things out the hard way, but you're also going to guide them down that path. You're going to correct them when they need it. So he says, here, I got some things against you. Here's what I have. You have, you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. We said this a couple weeks ago, but that word immorality is the Greek word porneo, which is the word we get pornography from. It means fornication. It's sexual sin. When we say immorality, you, maybe you might think that's bad table manners, but it's talking about something specific. And I, I, throughout the Bible, idolatry and, and sexual immorality so often went together that they're often brought up in the same place. And he says, you, you've got some that hold to that teaching. Now, what's interesting is, is a few verses later, earlier, he said, you've, you, you've held on to my name. You've held the faith. He uses the same word. It's the same in the original language, too. He uses the same word to say, you, some hold to the teachings of Balaam. So there are things you got to hold on to, and there's some things you got to let go of. It matters what you're holding on to. And you may not realize that you're holding on to anything. In fact, in our culture, we're convinced that there's no real objective truth. We're convinced that there's no absolute morality. And so we don't think we're holding on to anything, but the fact that we don't think we're holding on to anything is actually us holding on to something. Right? So here we are holding on to this idea of whatever feels right must be right. But that's what an animal does. An animal feels like going to the bathroom, they go to the bathroom. And an animal feels like, you know, doing something with that dog across the lawn, they're going to do something. Because whatever they feel, they got to do. We are humans created in the image of God who can say, my body might want to do something. My, my, even my emotions are trying to lead me to do something, but I'm not out of control. I'm in control. I've given that control to the Spirit of God. Through Jesus, you now have victory over those urges, victory over that fight where you say, but it feels right. Yeah, there's lots of things that feel right that will kill you. Right? You see, isn't that what Satan said to Adam and Eve in the garden, to Eve specifically? He says, it looks good, it'll taste good, and you'll be as wise as God. So what did he appeal to? 
He appealed to the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Doesn't it look good, the lust of the eyes? It will taste good, lust of the flesh. It'll make you just like God, the pride of life. He's, he's appealing to their instincts of, it'll look, it looks good, it'll taste good, it'll do something for me. But in the end, it leads to destruction. He says that Balaam taught Balak to put a stumbling block in front of the Israelites. I don't know if you know the story. And we briefly talked about it last or a couple weeks ago. But when I was growing up as a kid, I, you know, I was a good church kid, so I knew all the Bible stories that were important. Like, I don't know the gruesome ones until I started reading my Bible. But like, I knew the Noah, of the Ark, Noah in the Ark. My children's Bible storybook didn't have people drowning, but it had animals, right? So that was good. That was the main message. And, and, and really, the story of Balaam to me, Balaam was this cute little fat guy riding on a donkey whose donkey talked to him. Sounds like a good dude. I, I, I want to know this guy. In fact, I even asked myself, I wonder what I'll, I'm going to ask Balaam when I get to heaven, what it was like to have a donkey talking to you. I've become convinced I'm not going to see Balaam there. I, I, I thought he was a hero because he had a talking donkey. He's basically Shrek. I thought he's a good guy. Read the book. If you read all of it, he's a villain. A bad dude and an unrepentant bad dude. So if you read some of the Jewish teachings, which are not scripture, you got to, some of the rabbinical teachings, you got to kind of take with a grain of salt sometimes. And, but sometimes they gain some insight. The, the teachers of the day kind of wrote about it later and said this guy was known as like a sorcerer. He was known as like the antecedent of Moses. Or antithesis of Moses, I should say. He's like the antithesis of Moses. Moses is this good prophet. Balaam is like an evil guy who's trying to control things through his spells and curses. The people of Alexandria, Alexandria in, during this time where this is written, were well known for being um, very, very into the, the magic scene, very into sorcery. And they believed that uh, Balaam was a very skilled sorcerer. Something about him, he was still like this weird twist on a prophet where he, could, he actually did hear from God and God actually used him to say some things, which is amazing. But his goal from the beginning was not to speak the word of the Lord. His goal was to make some money by cursing the Israelites. So the Israelites are wandering around. This is after they've turned down the promised land, but they still got to wander around for 40 years. Well, you know, wandering around means they're not staying in the same place, right? If you're not staying in the same place, you're probably going to trespass on some people's property. They start coming close to Midian, and the uh, king of that day looks over, and his name is Balak, and he looks at them and he goes, these guys are mighty. These guys look strong. These guys are going to wipe us out. In fact, they'd heard rumors of what God had done through the Israelites, and he was freaked out. So Balaam came and said, I can handle this for you. I can curse them. So Balak hires him, and he says, go ahead and try. And Balaam goes, and he tries to, he tries to curse the people of Israel, and, and he can't because God says you can't touch these people. They're blessed. They got my hand on them. He comes to Balak, and he says, I tried. I, I hate to say this. I accidentally ended up blessing them. Sorry. No refunds. No refunds. But location, location, location. If I stand over here and do it, it might work. So he goes over here, he moves over here, and he tries again. He ends up blessing them. 
comes back to Balak. Balak is getting ticked off at this point because he's investing a lot of money in this curse. Well, Balaam says, I think if I stand in this high place and I look down over here, I, I think it's going to work. But just, just let me try one more time. He ends up giving the greatest blessing over them and in fact even goes so far as to predicting that, that, that star that was going to rise in the east that later signified the birth of Jesus. That's nuts that God used him in that way. But the thing that he comes back and he says, he goes, the shout of a king is amongst them. They got a shout of a king in their midst. He goes back, and in fact, I think it's in Nehemiah where it says, Balaam tried to curse them, but God turned his curse into a blessing. Isn't that a powerful thought? That, that this guy, I mean, we saw it in Egypt. We saw the sorcerers, right? Who said, we can do everything you can do. I mean, we're talking about guys that, that Moses threw, a, or Aaron threw a stick down, and it turned into a snake. These guys said, we can do that too. They threw their sticks down, turned into a snake. I don't know how that worked. Was that a trick? Was there really an evil power at work? Either way, God's snakes ate their snakes. So God keeps showing them, hey, I'm more powerful than all these other gods. I'm more powerful than this. And, and the Israelites keep needing to be convinced. But in this story, we see the fact that there is no curse. Zero. No curse that can destroy those who are walking in the blessing of God. No curse that can touch them. No power of the enemy. You know, when we've ministered, uh, you know, I've, I've ministered on reserves all my life. And there'll be people who say, you know, there are people trying to put a curse on me. And you might laugh that off and say, <laughs> superstition. But there's some real dark stuff going on. And we've experienced it. Jack, you know what I'm talking about. Audrey, you know what I'm talking about. We've experienced real, actual stuff that you can't explain. And when my parents first lived in Loon Lake back in the 70s, a, a medicine man came to their door, banged on their door, and said, why aren't my curses working on you? You know why? Because he was used to seeing results. This wasn't a scam. It was legitimate. It was dark. It was evil, but it was legitimate. And they, they said, well, sit down. We'll tell you about this. In fact, through that time, more than one of them got saved. But they began to see that there is no curse that could triumph over the blessing of God. These people are covered by the blood of Jesus. There's no fear, right? So it bothers me when Christians walk around with fear of curses. You should not. You are free. You know, so somebody said, what about this? And what about this? And what about, what about a generational curse? Listen, you're part of a new family now. You're brought into the family of Jesus. You bear his name now. And the Old Testament says, in those days, after my Redeemer comes, he says, no longer will you say our fathers ate, drank sour grapes and their teeth were set on edge. In other words, the sins of your fathers are not going to be visited on you. Jesus on the cross drank sour wine for you. So we've been delivered from the curse, right? End of story. Except the story didn't end. The next chapter, like it ends with this beautiful prophecy that can't be conquered. They're the people of God. I see a mighty army rising. And we close our Bible and say, amen, hallelujah, and we, let's go home. And then the next verse says, then the Israelites played the harlot with the people of Midian. What? Played the harlot? That doesn't sound good. Is there any way we can translate that, that that sounds okay? No. It's really bad. 
And in fact, when you're reading it in the book of Numbers, there's no explanation as to why. Like all of a sudden, these people of God, they're like, thank you, thank you, Lord, we're walking in your blessing. Thank you, Lord, we're walking in your, you're providing manna from heaven. You're meeting our needs. You're protecting us from our enemies. And then all of a the sudden, they're sleeping around with Midianite women, and they're sacrificing offerings to Baal, this false god, and they're doing things that you're like, what's wrong with you? You just saw God move on your behalf. And there's really no explanation in that section as to why they did it. We just see the result. A great plague comes on them. In fact, many of them are killed right then. There's like a huge number of them that die right there because of that mass exodus from God's plan. And we're left wondering, what in the world happened? And a few chapters later, you see the Israelites conquer the Midianites. And it says, listed among the dead was that sorcerer, Balaam. And they put him to the sword. Like, they're celebrating his death. See, the last thing we heard from this guy was a great prophecy. Then all of a sudden, they're really happy he's dead. What happened? Well, the rest of the Bible fills in the blanks for us. In fact, I want you to read something with me in Peter. I believe it's 2 Peter. For the sake of time, I've, I've, um, I've told you the story without reading the whole thing, but if you want to read it yourself, you know, I would encourage you to go to Numbers 22 and read that story, and then in Numbers 23, you see the rest of it. I want to read you something real quick. You don't, don't turn here, but in Deuteronomy, he says, he says, they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Beth Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord, literally Yahweh, your God, was not willing to listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. You shall never seek their peace or their prosperity all your days. They have a way to get to these things, and it's a false way. He said, the Lord loves you. Because he loves you, he turned that curse into a blessing, which is beautiful. And I, I, I want to preach a sermon right now. I just want to preach that. Can we just talk about turning the curse into the blessing and we can go home and we all be happy and you can like me? We good with that? But that's not what we're reading in Revelation 2. But that's good. That's a great message. But let's not forget that the next verse says, and then a bunch of them turned away from the Lord and a bunch of them died. <clears throat> so later, Peter writes this, and, and, and this is a jarring rant. Um, and and I, maybe I shouldn't use the word rant because rant somehow makes it seem like he's off the hinges. But this is the Holy Spirit speaking through Peter. And sometimes when you love somebody greatly, you'll, you'll speak passionately. Um, and some, Peter really does love the church here. And he's warning them against false prophets. There is, a, um, if you read the book of Jude, Jude writes a letter that's like has a very similar rant against false teachers that will rise up in the last days. And he says some of the very same things, which is, which is fascinating. But he says here in 2 Peter chapter 2, he says, um, 
let's start in, uh, I mean, you really need to read this whole thing, but just for the sake of time, he says um, in verse 15, forsaking the right way, they've gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. These are springs without water and mist driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For what, by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. And that's, that's an interesting statement, that, and a very true statement, that really the work of what God, or sorry, what, what the enemy was doing through Balaam was teaching someone how to enslave people who, were, who were, had been set free from slavery. So Revelation 2, what we read was that Balaam taught Balak to put a stumbling block in front of the Israelites. So let me spell it out for you. Peter talks about it. You really need to read that whole chapter to get the full view of it. And I encourage you, write it down, go read it at home. But the stumbling block he put in front of them was he convinced the Midianite women, young women especially, to go and um, expose themselves and seduce the, the, the Israelites. So the Israelites went and did stuff with the women, and then they started sacrificing to their idols, and the people that could not be cursed stepped out of the blessing on their own accord. So what Balaam had done was, he said, we can't curse these people, but there's a loophole. I can't curse the people God blessed, but I know a way to get them to walk out from the blessing themselves. Put a stumbling block in front of them. What's troubling about this is that in the New Testament, when he talks about Balaam, he doesn't actually talk about people out in the world causing us trouble. When Peter talks about it, when Jude talks about it, and when Jesus talks about it here. So those are three witnesses talking about it in the New Testament, 1,500 years later. And when all three talk about it, it's coming from in the church. Does that bother you on some level? We like to sit at home and watch our news, our favorite news channel, or Facebook news feed or whatever, and we like to be convinced that all the trouble's out there, and, and that we just need to put up higher walls and just keep keep the bad people out of our church. But he doesn't say the problem's coming from out there. He says the problem's coming from in here. He says, and really the problem is you're going you're gonna to have teachers, like teachers, people that have authority, people that should be leading you to Jesus are actually convincing you it's okay to do this. It's okay to do this. In fact, leading you, and, and, and with, whether they know it or they don't, they're putting a stumbling block in front of you. And the reason they're doing it is the same reason Balaam did it. There's greed there. There's self-preservation there. There's, there's all these things, but they're putting these stumbling blocks in front of you. And so Jesus says it's happening in that church in Pergamum. To understand that, you've got to understand that, that, that a lot of the idolatry in Pergamum, just like we've been telling you, a lot of the idolatry in Pergamum was directly tied to some pretty perverted things. 
So somehow they've got teachers who are coming and going, you know, it's okay. Just do this stuff. So the Nicolaitans, he, he mentions as well, and we don't have a lot of the, uh, the information on the Nicolaitans. There were, there were early church uh, historians and, and, and teachers who, who said that this, these were followers of a man named Nicholas. Maybe even the Nicholas that's, that's picked as one of the seven in the book of Acts. We don't know for sure. But the, the common wisdom that was passed down from early church fathers, which you can make up your mind whether you believe that or not, but this seems to be the best source we can find, says that there was a teaching amongst them that combined, that said Christians can also worship, can also introduce some of the elements of idolatry. Like it's okay to mix some of this stuff, as long as your heart's right. You know, I mean, come on, we still love Jesus, but, you know, let's, it's okay to mix parts of our culture with this, right? This is our Greek culture. This is our Roman culture, whatever. It's okay to mix this. And in doing so, they destroyed the very thing that was giving them life. Jesus says, I hate that. It's not a lot of things that Jesus says he hates. He says, I hate the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So you see how the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of Nicolaitans go together? What's it all about? Compromise. It's about compromise. There's nobody here teaching them to go serve Satan. These guys aren't telling them to deny Jesus. You know, the people that are telling them to deny Jesus have failed. These guys are dying for Jesus. It's the people who tell them to mix a little bit of this and a little bit of this and compromise that have had success. What does he call it? A stumbling block in front of the Israelites. What's a stumbling? It's something that's going to cause you to trip and to fall. And you're running. You're running the race. We are setting our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. But now somebody put a stumbling block in your path and you trip. It's meant to, to get you off of where God's called you. It's meant to stop you from running the race God called you to. And so I have two encouragements for you tonight. First of all, don't fall for the sin of Balaam. Don't fall for the teaching of Balaam. And second of all, don't be a Balaam. And I know that should be painfully obvious. <laughs> but do you know why? Can, can we just imagine why a guy like, like Nicholas might have started teaching this? I think I have an idea because they're feeling intense social pressure, intense societal pressure, and people are dying because they refuse to bow to the culture. So don't you think there's going to be people whose solution to persecution is if we compromise, we won't be persecuted. If we compromise, we won't lose our family. If we compromise, they won't hate us. We can all just get along. Do you see how that could happen today? We're so afraid of being pushed to the fringes of society that we lose what makes us salty, right? Jesus said, you're salt, you're light, but if you lose your saltiness, what good are you? If we lose what makes us different, well, what makes us different is not what the clothes we wear. It's not that we meet in a building. What makes us different is that we look like Jesus and we follow Jesus. And what he says, we do. And Jesus said to us, he goes, why do you call me Lord? Why do you keep saying Lord, Lord, if you don't do what I say? You can imagine how annoyed he might get, how annoying that might be for someone to keep calling you boss and they never listen to you, <laughs> right? What's next, boss? Put the fries in the fryer. No way, boss. Quit calling me boss. You obviously don't think I'm your boss. Sure, boss. What do you want me to do now? Mop the floor. No way. Not going to do that, boss. 
I hate that name. I'd rather you just not say it. For, I mean, do you even work here? Yeah, boss. <laughs> Didn't I fire you last week? No, boss. Here I am, boss. Like, this is what Jesus said to people. He's like, you keep following me around calling me Lord. Then I tell you to do something. You go, no, Lord. Stop calling me Lord if you don't mean it. Here I am saying that, and I feel a little prick in my own heart because I've done that. No, Lord. You don't mean that, Lord. Ah, Lord. Good one, Lord. And for me, it's, it's easy for me to stand here and say I never have to deal with that because you know what? I've been raised in a Christian home. The things I'm tempted with may not be the most obvious things, but I'm still tempted to do something contrary to what God says all the time, just like you are. We have to stand up and say, no, I'm not going down that road. I'm not going to say no, Lord. Because that's, that's an oxymoron. I don't want to be a moron using an oxymoron saying, no, Lord. I want to follow him. There's going to be people today that put a stumbling block in front of you. As long as your heart's right. As long as you love Jesus. Do whatever you want. As long as you love Jesus, as long as your heart's in a good place, you can do all this stuff. You know, what if, what if I, I said to my wife, you know, hey, hey Tia, I'm, I'm, I'm having affairs with several women, but my heart's right, and I love you. As long as I love you, it's okay, right? Like, as long as my heart's in a good place, and I still love you, you're fine with this, right? She's going to say, no, you idiot. No, I don't know what you'd say. You would you not say, you wouldn't be happy with this. I'm even uncomfortable talking about the hypothetical. Like, I feel like I need to repent for bringing a hypothetical up right now. That's how weird this makes me feel. I want to go home and wash my hands and take a shower or something. Like, I, I feel dirty just saying it. It doesn't matter. Obviously, you know, I, I would think she'd say if she could, if she would be calm enough to say it, which is the question. If she'd be calm enough to say it, she'd be like, how can your heart be in the right place if you keep doing this? How can you say you love me if you keep doing this? You see, you can say you love me, you can think you love me, but you keep doing this and this is not love. We say we love Jesus. We'll follow him. You know, he, he, we've, we've said this over and over again. There aren't any perfect people. He's not asking to be perfect. He's not, he's not saying, I, I, I mean, although he calls us to be perfect. He calls us to be perfected, to be sanctified. And I'm not going to get there on day one. I'm not even going to get there on day 201. There's going to be a process of becoming more like him. But I never want to be in the place where I say, no, Lord, that's enough. Or even like these people to go back into some things that I turned away from. You know, the, the sad thing about the idea of a stumbling block, it's used throughout the scripture. And it, what's interesting is when Jesus brings it up and when other teachers bring it up, they there's the stumbling block. Jesus is a stumbling block because people trip over the fact that he was crucified. They trip over the several different things about him. But there's a stumbling block that people put in front of other people that keeps them from Jesus. And almost always when that term is used, it's not talking about um, a new believer and another new believer. It's usually talking about people that know better and have been put in a position to teach, to preach, to disciple, to guide. It's, it's, it's somebody who's using a position of authority to compromise somebody who may not know better. 
And Jesus said, if you're going to be a stumbling block to these little ones, I'd rather you just tie a millstone around your neck and jump in the sea, which is on the list of things that Jesus said that we don't want to admit he ever said. But So I stand here as a pastor, noting that I, I, I'm up here preaching all the time. And um, there may be a day where it's very tempting for me to say, you know what, it's all okay. You know, guys, as long as you love Jesus, it's fine here and it's fine to do that. And, and, and then we whittle away at the very thing that makes us alive. The very thing that's meant to reach the world. This is the lie that the world needs us to be exactly like them so we can reach them. But that's not true. The world needs you to look like Jesus. That's what they're looking for. They are not looking for a PG-rated party. You know, they're not looking for a PG-rated version of themselves. <laughs> they're looking for something. They may not even know that they're looking for it, but they're looking for salvation. They're looking for life. They're looking for hope. And that's Jesus. So I want more and more to look like Jesus. I don't look as much like Jesus as I want to look. I want to look more like Jesus than I do tonight. But that's my goal. I just every day be more like Jesus. I said this last week. I, I don't care where you are on the road as long as we're going in the same direction. Don't buy into the lie that you can say no Lord here and yes Lord here and it'll all work out. Because I'll tell you, that's hardening your heart. And hardness of heart is like cancer. It will spread. Today, he says in Hebrews, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Once you know something, once you know that God is saying go the different way, once you know something is not his way, I tell you, turn the other way as fast as you can. Because by you saying, Lord, I'll, I'll love you here, but I won't love you here. I'll listen to you here, but I won't listen to you here. What we're doing is we are letting hardness of heart remain, and it'll spread, and it won't be long before eventually you look around, and the things that used to quicken your heart don't quicken your heart anymore because now you're hardened. The, the things that used to cause you to love other people, you don't love other people like that. The things that used to make you rejoice, you don't feel that joy anymore. Why? Because that hardness that started out small here, I allowed it to stay, and it spread. We pray for all sorts of messed up, Folks, because I'm a messed up folk without Jesus, you are too. We pray for all sorts of people to come into this building, and a lot of them are going to come so dirty and messed up, just like we were, that they're going to need someone to love them. They don't need the usher with a clipboard at the door saying, I'm going to ask you a list of questions, see if you're allowed in. I don't care. I mean, as long as they're not going to like shoot somebody in the head here, I'm okay. Stay. Sit, and sit wherever you want to sit. Experience the love of Jesus, Right? Come here, I want you to be here. But at some point, you receive Jesus, you say, I want to follow him. You, you can't just for the rest of your life saying, well, he, he accepted me the way I was, so I'm going to stay the way I was. Right? That's, that's silly. You got to say, hey, I'm following Jesus. Following means there's movement. So don't listen to Balaam. Don't listen. Don't fall for the stumbling block. Because I'll tell you this, Satan can't take the blessing of God from you. Can't take the gifts that God put in your heart. He can't take them from you. Can't take your call away from you. Well, he can get you to give it up. He can. He can get you to give it away. Now, maybe some people just give it away because out of fear. 
right? I'm afraid to step out. So he, he, he gets him to give it up by intimidation, by accusation, just like, I'm not good enough, and they give it up. But he might also give, get you to just step out of the blessing of God by putting a stumbling block right in front of you. And maybe for some of us, it's sexual immorality. Maybe for some of us, it's idolatry. Maybe for some of us, it's, it's compromise here or compromise there. Maybe it looks different, but it all's got the same root. Don't fall for a stumbling block because here's the good news. I gotta tell you, the scripture says for every temptation, he's provided a way of escape. That's good news for you. There's nothing, there's no temptation that can overcome you in Christ. You standing in Jesus, I know it may seem hard. I know it may seem like a struggle. I, may, I know you may try, and, and you, then you fall. You tried, and then you fell, and you say, it didn't work, and you get mad. Don't get mad. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Don't, don't, don't fall into that trap of just staying in a pit of condemnation. Run to Jesus. Just, just accept the fact that you are forgiven. Accept the fact that his love is big enough, and, and turn around. There's a sorrow that is according to the will of God, 2 Corinthians 7 says. There is a sorrow according to the will of God. That, that means you should feel wrong when you're doing wrong. That's proof that the Holy Spirit lives in you. This doesn't feel good. It shouldn't feel good. Doesn't feel good when I beat up the neighbor kid. Shouldn't feel good. Right? If it feels good, something's wrong. The fact that you got the Spirit of God, that's something that says there is a sorrow that comes when you're walking the wrong way. In, in, in the, the letter to the Corinthians where that comes up, it came out of sexual immorality that was rampant throughout the church that was being allowed. And in fact, he says, I'm glad you felt sorry because it was proof that God was in you. And it, it, he said, I was sorry that you felt sorry. I was sorry that I was part of a playing to made you sorry. This, this is confusing, I know. But he said, I felt bad that you felt bad because Paul's not a robot. <laughs> you look people in the eye and go, I don't want you to feel bad. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> I hate that you're feeling bad right now. I don't want to make you feel bad. But he said, then I was glad that you felt sorry because I realized it was a sorrow according to the will of God. And he says, the sorrow according to the will of God leads to repentance. That's the point. See, the sorrow of the world, the sorrow of the enemy is not supposed to bring you to repentance. It's supposed to bring you to condemnation. It's supposed to bring you to a place where you think, I'm a terrible person. I can't do anything for God. I might as well quit now. But the sorrow according to the will of God will cause you to turn. And it says it's a repentance that leads to salvation or deliverance from whatever you're dealing with without regret. Good news. When you turn, you leave regret behind. You leave that sorrow behind because you've turned. Then he says, then the sorrow, the sorrow according to the world produces death. Which means if you stay in sorrow for your past after you've repented, that'll, that'll kill you. You need to just let it go. and Realize you're washed. Realize you're clean. And don't go back. Keep moving forward. Church, I want you to know that um, it's our heart not to put stumbling blocks in front of you, but to make straight paths for your feet. And you should make straight paths for your feet as well. That the limb that is lame would not be put out of joint, but rather be healed, as it says in Hebrews. It's my, my heart for you, wherever you are in your journey, that tomorrow you'd be closer to Jesus than you were today. It's my heart for you that, that um, she never say no, Lord. 
Why don't you just say, yes, Lord. And, and step by step, he's going to change. Step by step, he's going to cause you to be more like him. Step by step, he's going to renew things in you that you couldn't have done yourself. I want you to, to be aware. You know, it says in the last days, people will heap teachers unto themselves in accordance with their own desires. I want you to know whatever, if you're dealing with, struggling with a sin, there's a preacher on YouTube that'll tell you it's okay. You know that? You can look hard enough and find someone to tell you Jesus is okay with it. But I'd rather you live. I'd rather you walk in the blessing of God. I'd rather you walk free and not go back to slavery. You know, Peter talks about, you know, the scripture talks about rather, a dog returning to its vomit. Like, don't go back. So there's always going to be a teacher out there. There's always going to be a preacher out there, a prophet out there, who will say, it's okay for you to compromise. It's okay. And I, I just want you to be aware that that's a block. That's a stumbling block. It's meant to trip you. Avoid that. Don't become that. I myself have had times where somebody else <laughs> had a problem with something I thought was innocent. Maybe it was a movie that was like, there's nothing wrong with that movie. And they're like, well, we, 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 wouldn't, we didn't feel right about watching it. When they say that to me, I feel guilty. I want to, like, tell them that they're insane. Why? Because, like, I, I want to watch that movie and not feel bad. And maybe it's okay for me to watch it. I don't know. There's some pretty hard lines, but there's some points where it's like, I don't know why you have a problem with that at all. Maybe they don't watch movies at all. Maybe they don't watch TV at all, and I'm going, you're one of those Amish people or something. No, I'm just a believer that doesn't watch movies. And so instantly, there's a feeling in me that I need to correct them. And I remember as a teenager, I, I, I learned this, and I, and I promised God, I will never try to talk somebody out of their standard. Because someday, that may be my standard. And as Paul said, it may not be sin to you. Now, there are hard-line sins. Listen, when he talks about fornication, when he talks about adultery, he talks about idolatry, he talks about murder. Like, there's things, there's hard-line sins. There's not a, that's a sin for you, but not for me. That's hard-line, that is sin. But there's other things that might be an area where, I don't know, but it's sin for him. So, for you, it might not be sin, but you talking him out of it? Because he feels he's going against his conscience, you've now caused him to sin. And the scripture says, you've become a stumbling block to that brother. So here's what, I, here's what we should do. Let's let Jesus be the stumbling block that people trip over and find a chief cornerstone. Let's never be the stumbling block in their way to Jesus. Amen? Don't fall for the stumbling block because he loves you enough. Now listen, tonight, you might say that's not my issue. It's not something I'm dealing with. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Um, encourage somebody else. Tonight, you might say, I'm dealing with something, and I've been trying to talk myself out of it being wrong, but I know it's wrong, or I, I, God told me to do something, and I've been trying to talk myself out of doing what he told me to do because I don't want to do it. And you know what? I would just encourage you, if he's Lord, let him be Lord. And um, with the voice of God comes the grace of God. That means the strength to do it. So there have been times, there have been things I had to let go of, and the moment God spoke to me, I mean, the moment he revealed it through his word, and I went, oh, man. Suddenly, there was strength to, to overcome. So embrace the word of God. Embrace the life of God. He's bigger than this. And with every temptation, there's a way of escape. He's, 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 he'll, he'll bring you out of it. Just trust him with it, all right? Let's stand up tonight. Let's praise the Lord together.